This is episode 294 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Support the show and get insider looks at the making of That Shakespeare Life at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Why just learn about Shakespeare history when you can experience it? Check out our library of hands-on history activity kits that coordinate with specific episodes of our show and with individual Shakespeare plays when you become a member of That Shakespeare Life. Sign up today to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. You can sign up at CassidyCash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Robin Ritchie of the Tewkesbury Mustard Company. And we make Tewkesbury Mustard in the way that William Shakespeare would be very familiar. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Christmas Carol describes anything that's sung at Christmas, whether it's a simple ballad or a massive consort song or a polyphonic madrigal. And it might be religious or it might be something like, oh, Thomas Wilkes wrote a five-part song called To Shorten Winter's Sadness. And this is basically, it's winter, we're going to eat lots of good food and have fun and do some mumming and let's get drunk which has no religion in it at all, but it's also a Christmas carol. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. It's finally December, and that means for many of us that the Christmas tree is lit, lights are hung, and we're enjoying all the Christmas music playing on the radio. Of course, William Shakespeare didn't have a radio, but he did have not only Christmas songs, but he celebrated the holidays with songs that are very similar to the ones we sing today. One particular form of vocal performance, known as the madrigal, rose to prominence in early modern England as an adaptation of earlier Italian poetry set to music, which English composers transformed into a uniquely English genre. The madrigal was a popular way to celebrate a wide variety of events and occasions, but one particular place it was celebrated was Christmas. There are specific Christmas madrigals that were written to celebrate the holidays during Shakespeare's lifetime. Here today to share with us the history of the madrigal and some samples of real Christmas carols that Shakespeare would have heard in the 16th century is our guest, historian, and early music specialist, Tamsin Lewis. Tamsin Lewis is a musician and historian. She studied violin at the Florence Conservatoire before reading classics and Italian at Oxford. She directs the early music ensemble Pazamezzo and has written, arranged, directed, and played music for theater productions at venues including Shakespeare's Globe, The Rose, and Hampton Court. She collaborates with theater and dance historians and practitioners to reconstruct masks and other 16th and 17th century entertainments. Tamsin has done recent work in TV and film, including talking with Lucy Worsley about 16th century Christmas 
customs in 12 Days of Tudor Christmas, and she worked as a consultant on the television show Discovery of Witches, among several others. Tamsin is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and an occasional lecturer on Renaissance music and art at the Courtauld Institute. Find out more about Tamsin and connect with her work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Tamsin. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hi, Casti. It's lovely to be here. What is the typical format of a madrigal that makes it recognizable alongside other forms of early modern music? So madrigals, the term madrigal covers a wide range of things, but it's essentially, it's a song that is in parts, it's usually polyphonic with each of the lines being equally important. It could be just for two singers to sing. It could be for as many as eight singers to sing, sometimes even more. So it's it's hard to pin down to one thing. Madrigals, they're, they're songs. They are songs sung in parts. Usually you would have just one person singing per voice and you would each person would have a part book with their own part in, but they couldn't see anyone else's. Unlike today, where you, we sing from scores, where you can see what other people are doing. They're not in Latin. They're secular songs. So they, they are written in the vernacular, usually. The lyrics, they cover a wide range of things. They really, they cover all the themes that you find in the Renaissance. So there are loads of love songs. And they're usually with a pastoral scene full of lovesick shepherds and shepherdesses. Also, lots of stories from classical mythology, because that was very popular at the time. But there are lullabies, there are laments, and there are songs written for special occasions, for birthdays, to honour the queen or the king, and for weddings, lots of nice wedding songs, madrigals, and also holidays like Christmas, of course. The madrigals started in Italy, and spread really throughout the Renaissance. Printing helped it spread faster before that, but often even then people, you would go to someone's house, copy out the songbook that they had and take it away with you. And that's sometimes how different people learnt their madrigals. Yes, madrigals are songs sung in parts for pleasure rather than in a professional occasion, usually. They were occasionally religious And although one usually thinks of madrigals as being just sung, they are actually, particularly as the period goes on, could be mixed voices and instruments. John Wilby, who is probably my favourite madrigal composer, in his second book of madrigals in 1609, he says, these are apt both for viol and voice. So you can, and it basically means you can play some lines and sing some lines and mix it together. The musical examples I'll give you throughout today will show this. Some will be just singing and some will have voices accompanied by instruments. When the English adapted the Italian madrigal, what did they change or add to this art form that created something that was uniquely English? So the thing about the English madrigal is... We're really a generation behind, which isn't necessarily a bad thing in this case. The madrigal on the continent and the low countries in France and in Italy, that's going from the 1530s. And we do know that some of these got over to England 
and were sung. There are manuscript sources and literary sources where they describe people doing these things. But it didn't take off as an English thing, really. There, there were English part songs, secular songs, where people did things, but not nothing where one composer would put together a whole load of beautiful songs, part songs in this way, until something called Musica Transalpina in 1588, which was really the catalyst, catalyst that set everything going. It was a collection of 46 madrigals, as you hear from the name Transalpina, over the Alps. These are songs that were brought over the Alps, and they were by some of the best composers around, by Ferrabosco and Palestrina, Lassus, Marenzio, and many others too. And they had been Englished, is the description that's given to them. So they used the tunes, all, all of the notes that Marenzio, Lassus and the rest of them had put down, but instead of the poetry, which was in, usually in Italian from Petrarch or other more modern sources, they translated these into English, but made it fit the metre of the songs. And this was hugely popular. It sold out. It was, and also two of the songs in the collection were by William Byrd, the English composer, and he himself produced, he, he produced his own book of madrigals in that year, 1588, some songs and sonnets, which is really one of the first times when you have an English composer putting so many pieces just of his own in one place. And in the next 30 years, oh, it, it just took off. Composers like Thomas Morley, John Wilby, Michael East, Orlando Gibbons, Robert Jones, Thomas Tonkins, Thomas Wilkes, John Ward, so many more. They created their own collections of songs and each of them added their own touch to it. The fact that we're in the 1580s, 1590s, early 1600s, means that the development of the madrigal in England coincided with the literary renaissance. So you've got the, well, really the best poetry that's ever been produced in this land coming at the same time as people were setting the words. And although there are no surviving contemporary madrigals with words by Shakespeare, there are certainly madrigals with lyrics by Philip Sidney or Walter Raleigh, Chidick Tichborne, Foot Gravel, Foot Gravel, Michael Drayton, and many, many more. I think there's some Marlowe as well. And Shakespeare's plays, of course, do contain magicals. And Twelfth Night is probably the play with the most music. And he there's Robert Jones's magical Farewell, Dear Love, is one of the songs that is sung in that. Something else that distinguishes English madrigals is the use of word painting. This is where the music imitates the words, for want of a better description. So if, if there's a madrigal by Thomas Morley, where as they climb up a mountain, the notes go up, and as they run down, the notes go down. They're running down a pace, so the notes are... So all the voices are chasing each other as they go down... It's not slow climbing. It, you can tell they're running. And then it says, 
they went two by two and you have only two voices singing then and three by three at which point you have three voices and then they say leaving her all alone and suddenly you've only got one voice for that and there's a wonderful symbiosis between music and words at this time the Italians did it too but the English really developed it there's one where someone really wants to sleep and they can't and you can hear the music trying to slow down because they're tired and being jerked awake again if they're distressed they'll say there are hellish jarring sounds and there's a really nasty discord so that even if you didn't know the words you would know what the words are saying because the music's telling you because again, you said the language in this was Latin, so not everybody would know. No, the language is English. Lang- I mean, this is the, it, what I said is it. It isn't Latin. That was the point I was oh, making. Okay. It's, in the, it's in the vernacular, so we're using. You know, we've you've got someone like Philip Sidney, so you make the most of his words, and it's you know in a way the singing, singing the words heightens their meaning. It's like a soundtrack to an audio drama. Absolutely. That's that's a perfect description for word painting. If this form of music was performed on sometimes created for specific occasions, as you alluded to earlier, I like Christmas. What's the difference between a magical and what we think of as a Christmas carol? Both terms are really flexible. The, the term carol is one that well, it, it come the term carol comes from the Latin word carola, and originally it's a dance. It's a round dance. People sing and they dance. And it gradually becomes to be more of a song than a dance. And now we call them Christmas carols. In those days, they called them Christmas carols, but the words even then didn't need to be for Christmas. And there were collections of Christmas carols, sometimes with just lyrics, sometimes with the music printed in England from 1520s onwards, really. And these carols could be anything from very simple ballads, which is a popular melody, that have something everyone would know that you would write Christmassy words to, sometimes religious, sometimes secular. So th- these are definitely not madrigals. But then there are also madrigals where of different sorts. There are part there are plain part songs where it's just a simple tune with all the other lines just harmonizing with it and not doing anything complicated an anonymous song called remember O thou man that first appears in i think it's the 1550s in wedderburn in scotland but thomas ravenscroft in his collection of popular songs include in his book deuteromelia in 1609 includes it and names it a christmas carol where he gives it four-part harmonies. I'll give you a sound clip for that. Oh, I'm so excited. We're going to hear a Christmas carol straight from the life of William Shakespeare. Remember, oh, the man, oh, the man, oh, the man. Remember, oh, the man, thy time is spent. Remember the man how thou dead and gone, and I did what I can therefore repent. Mm-hmm. 
would have known that um, so we've got the sort of thing that Ravenscroft did that he calls a Christmas carol and that's very simple but then you've got something quite different you've got in William Byrd's Songs of Sundry Nature which was printed in 1589 he's got a beautiful song in five and six parts called From Virgin's Womb and he describes it as a carol for Christmas Day and this is a world away from the Ravenscroft song. It's in two parts. The first part has one voice, another voice, and vials. And then the second voice, which is a cheerful chorus, has is, is just the voices and no instruments. But it, it's a madrigal still. Thank you. 
John Atty did did a lovely one called Sweet was the song the Virgin sang. You really can tell the difference between the carol and and the magical, just the complicatedness of the sounds, like you're saying, with the second part with no instruments versus having them both together and the harmonies. That's neat that they had both to celebrate the holiday. But they are both carols. This this is the interesting thing. Carol basically describes anything that is sung. A Christmas carol describes anything that's sung at Christmas, whether it's a simple ballad or a massive consort song or a polyphonic madrigal. And it might be religious or it might be something like, oh, Thomas Wilkes wrote a five-part song called To Shorten Winter's Sadness. And this is basically, it's winter, we're going to eat lots of good food and have fun and do some mumming and let's get drunk, which has no religion in it at all, but it's also a Christmas carol. <laughs> to shorten winter's sadness, see where the nymphs with I mean, that's very similar to what we have today. We have both for Christmas here where, you know, you think of songs like Jingle Bells, which isn't at all about anything religious, but then you have Oh Holy Night, both of it's about, you know, the birth of Jesus. So I understand the tradition having having both. And it's fun to think that Shakespeare had both during his life as well. Very much so. Christmas in Shakespeare's time, for for us in England anyway, it seems to start at, in the shops at Halloween, if not before. And by the time you get to Boxing Day, they've started putting Easter eggs in the shops. But in Shakespeare's time, Christmas did start also at Halloween. The famous saying is, is that Christmas goes from Hallowtide to Candlemas, which meant that it started in November, end of October, November, and then there was a fast, and then there were the fe- was the feast of Christmas with its twelve days. But it didn't finish on Twelfth Night. It carries on until the second of February, which is Candlemas. There aren't any, or at least none that survive, of these during Shakespeare's lifetime. But throughout the early and mid seventeenth century, there are books printed. They're they're ballad books, and they're simply books of ly- lyrics, and they say to the tune of Troy Town or to the tune of Bonnie Sweet Robin or whatever. And they are collections of carols that are written for specific days of Christmas. Often you will get, so, so I mean, that there are, you've got Christmas Eve, you've got Christmas Day, you've got St. Stephen's Day on the 26th, St. John's Day on the 27th. Innocence Day on the 28th, you've got the Feast of the Circumcision for New Year's Day, as well as New Year's Day itself, which is a time for giving gifts. Twelfth Night, Twelve E, and Twelfth Day. 
and you have songs. There are songs for all of these. There are religious songs for them, and there are songs just about what we're going to eat and all the games you're going to play. There's some lovely games they played. I was talking about the educated classes, the merchant class of the gentry, the aristocracy, singing madrigals, making music together. And it really was something that everyone could do. Remember, they didn't have television. And there's a wonderful description in Thomas Morley's Plain and Easy Introduction to Music, where a man says, I went to supper with these friends. And after supper, they brought out music books. And they expect us all to be able to join in. They just gave me a part and said, sing it. And I couldn't do it. And everyone looked at me and wondered how I'd been brought up that I couldn't do this. So, and so that's his reason for going to learn about music. But this, this is it's quite a good illustration of the way that people would just sit and sing madrigals after, after meals. It's a fun thing to do. Just as what you would do hanging out with your friends, a fun like Christmas party, I'd like to think. We'd get everyone together, have a meal, and then we sing Christmas-themed madrigals. Christmas-themed I, madrigals, sometimes saucy ones, sometimes any, anything. But honestly, um, I think we should bring this tradition back. I like the sound of this. It's a great tradition. I'd be in favor of it coming back. There was an English magical school I read about. You can correct me if I'm calling this the wrong thing, but it's it existed from 1588 to 1627. So overlapping sort of the end of Shakespeare's life. And I was wondering if this school was a product of the magical's popularity that you said was booming during this time period in England, or if this was something else or exactly what function did this have? Tell us more about it. So the term the English Magical School is something that's applied by later musicologists and historians to describe this amazing time. And it, you know, it, I 20, uh, we say 1627 because that is pretty much the end. I think Walter Porter does a lot in 1530, it's 1630, but it changes after that. So it wasn't like a building where people went and studied madrigals. This was just a phrase used to describe kind of the time period of intense interest and training. That, that's right. It's to describe the composers who were to describe the work written and the composers who wrote such fine work. Well, I know we would love to learn more about madrigals and Christmas carols from Shakespeare's lifetime because this has really been a fun look at them. And I wonder, as an expert in this topic, can you give us some recommendations for books or resources we should start with if maybe we're new to the history of madrigals? So to, to find madrigals themselves, I would go to the Petrucci Library, which is IMSLP. It's a wonderful website where they have scans of the original manuscripts and books so that you can look at what they looked like then. But And if you want, sometimes they have modern arrangements too. For other modern arrangements of the magicals, you can go to CB, CPDL, the Choral, Choral Public Domain Library, where if you put in a composer, you can find, or if you put in the word magical, hundreds of things will come up for you. If you want it in print, Stainer and Bell have probably the best, the most comprehensive collection of English madrigals. They have a series of books called The English Madrigalists that goes in, must, must be at about 30 or 40 volumes by now. If you want to read about people 
about music and its place in society. One book that I really like is Christopher Marsh's Music and Society in Early Modern England. These are excellent resources. I'm so excited to check these out. We will place links to these resources in the show notes for today's episode so you can get the spelling of the titles and the authors all correct and go right where you need to be directly. So make sure you stay tuned for the URL for where to find those. Now, Tamsin, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. It's a difficult one. There are so many authors I love, but to take just one of their books and none of the others, I think probably what I'd go for would be the multi-volume Oxford English Dictionary, because I really like words and etymologies and 20-odd tomes of every possible meaning with its historical links will keep me busy for a while, I hope. I think that is a fabulous choice. And I don't think I've ever had anyone select that, but I do think it's a smart choice for your desert island selection. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? So I'm preparing two concert tours, one on Restoration England, um, music from the time of Charles II, which is lots of songs about chocolate and coffee and horse racing and the plague and great fire and things like that and simultaneously we're preparing a program of Elizabethan music looking at different aspects of Elizabethan life we'll be playing that at Athelhampton House in in Dorset later this year and we'll probably record bits of it I'm also writing a book on John Playford's London, all all the places in 17th century London that have pieces of music written for them. You can map your way around London that way. And I'm applying, applying for funding, so it may or may not happen, to look at green sleeves and costume. Because the ballad green sleeves is apart from everyone knows it it's not written by Henry VIII and it's in Shakespeare and Merry Wives of Windsor but the whole ballad is is 17 verses most of it is all the gifts that this man who is showering on this woman who doesn't want them and it's it's a bit like a it's a bit of a stalker's charter really because he dresses her from the skin up and it describes every item of clothing. So as a costume resource on what people were wearing and how it's described, I find it fascinating. And I'm applying to Janet Arnold Fund to recreate the costume to make a video to match the images and words. What a wonderful collection. This all sounds like great things. And we will place links in the show notes for where you can follow Tamsin's work and the places where these concerts and and events are taking place. So you can attend if you're able to do that. Tamsin Lewis, thank you so much for being here and sharing with us the history of magicals for Shakespeare's lifetime and giving us a little slice of what Christmas carols would have been like. It's been really fun to hear some of the sounds and songs that Shakespeare would have used to celebrate the Christmas holidays in his lifetime. And I really appreciate you being here to share these songs with us. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege. 
Inside the show notes for today's episode, we've placed visuals of the history you're learning about in our conversation, including pictures of Elizabethan madrigals and full song samples from Pazimetso, where you can hear recreations of popular Christmas songs from Shakespeare's lifetime, along with links to more information, pictures and images all about the various composers that you heard about during our conversation. You can really dive into the visual parts of the history we shared with you today, all packed into the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 294. That's CassidyCash.com slash episode 294. And don't forget to check those show notes for a special Christmas gift just from me to you to say thanks for listening to our show. If you love exploring the life of William Shakespeare and want to try out a piece of the history you learn about here on the show each week, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. Members get access to a library of hands-on history activity kits that coordinate not only with the specific episodes of our show, but they coordinate with specific Shakespeare plays, which makes it really easy to bring hands-on history right into your classroom and your study of Shakespeare's works. It's a great way to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. Patrons of our show get 40% off of membership to That Shakespeare Life, plus access to the making of our show, including video versions of episodes here and a library of over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms. You can become a patron today at patreon.com slash That Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you will join us for our entire Christmas series coming up this month in December and that you enjoy the Christmas holidays with now some wonderful Christmas songs to go with it. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.